So in our study in the Gospel of Luke, we're not coming to the end of Jesus's ministry in Galilee, and and it's like it's a conclusion of the events that are taking place there, and you're starting to see Jesus going to be making a shift towards his focus on Jerusalem. Now. Uh, specifically, we're going to be looking at the disciples a little bit this morning, looking at chapter 9, verses 43 to 50, because there's some stuff that's going on with them that's really important for us to engage with. Now, after their successful mission trip, Jesus tells them about his impending death in chapter 9, verse 21 and 22. And then a short time later, as his ministry is ending uh, in Galilee, he's setting his face to Jerusalem. That's chapter 9, verse 51. We find ourselves in between those sections, and he tells his disciples again about his impending death. Luke mentioned several problems that the disciples had with Jesus' predictions of his death, and so I just want to read about Jesus foretelling his death and, and kind of the aftermath that comes with that. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Luke chapter 9, uh, verse 43 to 50. Luke 9, 43 to 50, and if you don't know where that is, just go ahead and use your table of contents. It'll get you there really quick. All right, Luke chapter 9, verse 43 to 50, here's what it says. While everyone was marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, listen to me and remember what I say. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. But they didn't know what he meant. Its significance was hidden from them so that they couldn't understand it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. Then his disciples began arguing about which of them was the greatest. But Jesus knew their thoughts and he brought a little child to his side, and he said to them, Anyone who welcomes this little child like this on my behalf welcomes me, and anyone who welcomes me also welcomes my Father who sent me. Whoever is the least among you will be the greatest. John said to Jesus, Master, we saw someone using your name casting out demons, but we told him to stop because he isn't in our group. But Jesus said, Don't stop him. Anyone who is not against you is for you. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord God, thank you so much for today. And I thank you, Lord, that we've got a passage like this that we're able to dive into to see um, a reflection, Lord, even of our own humanity, uh, but certainly, Lord, the difficulty of the, of the disciples in learning and engaging uh, in what Jesus was doing, what you were doing. And so, Lord God, I pray that you will help us to be a people who have eyes that see, ears that hear, and hearts that are ready for you this morning. In your name I pray. Amen. So, the incident that we have here is Jesus, again, foretelling his death, and it shows us the patience, actually, that Jesus has with his disciples. If you'll remember uh, from last week's message, uh, we have a statement from Jesus that says, you, you, um, you perverse generation, how much longer do I need to be with you? And so it's a, it's a statement of frustration, but you also see Jesus' patience in that he continues to teach them, and he continues to try to draw them near. And that in and of itself is something that we need to bear in mind in our own relationship with Jesus. That, that look, there are going to be some times where, where we may sense a, a disconnect from Jesus. But I want us to know and remember that he's always trying to draw us near. Always trying to get us to learn things and, and, and a change into being more and more like him. The disciples here, though, we find um, some difficulties that they were having. You may say that they had... Uh, some problems that we want to highlight here that we can then learn from. The first one would be this. They had a problem of perception. And in verses 43 to 45, it says, While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. 
Now, Jesus has just cast out a demon of a body, but while everyone is marveling at everything that was going on, he takes his disciples aside and he has this short conversation with them. And by saying this to the disciples, he wanted them to understand what his primary purpose was. As one commentator said, the man, the main message of the gospel is not that Jesus can perform exorcisms or other wonders, although of course he can, but that he came to suffer and die for our sins. Now in the first prediction of his death, Jesus said in verse 22, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed on the third day and be raised to life. And this is the second prediction, right? And this is where Jesus is saying that, that he's going to need to be delivered into the hands of men, that he's going to be betrayed and delivered into the hands of men. And it made even less sense to them uh, than when Jesus mentioned it the first time. As a matter of fact, Luke noted in verse 45, but they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them so that they did not grasp it. And they were afraid to ask him about it. So the disciples had a problem of perception. They still didn't correctly perceive the purpose of Jesus' ministry. They didn't understand that Jesus had to experience suffering and rejection and death and resurrection to fulfill his mission of seeking and saving the lost. One might cut the 12 disciples some slack, though, and I think that's important because sometimes we look at the disciples and like, why don't you guys just get this already? And I think we got to cut them a little bit of slack because they hadn't experienced it all yet. We have the vantage point of we have the Bible and we get to look back at, at, at the events, but they were living out the events. They were experiencing them. So the resurrection hadn't happened yet. The betrayal hadn't happened yet. The, none of the stuff that Jesus had predicted had happened yet. And so they were living this out and we're kind of walking forward with them as they're learning these things and living these things out. So we know that he was crucified and buried and resurrected after three days. And yet, at the same time, we sometimes have a problem with perception too. We take our eyes off Jesus and his saving work and we, we know that Jesus saves, but we want him to provide for all of our earthly comforts now. And so we'll follow Jesus as long as he meets our needs, right? But that's not authentic Christian discipleship. A commentator by the name of Philip Graham Ryken writes, Make no mistake, Jesus calls us to keep the cross at the center the way the Apostle Paul did when he resolved to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Or when he refused to boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The cross must remain at the center of our personal evangelism, of what we tell people about the Christian faith. It must remain at the center of our stewardship, of the costly decisions that we make about our investing of our time and our money in the gospel work. It must remain at the center of our family life as we serve and love one another. The cross must also remain the center of our commitment to see the world one for Christ, starting in our own communities. So the cross is not there so that I can have a nicer thing. The cross is there to bring redemption to the world. So they had a problem of perception. And I would suggest to you that often we do too. Next, they had a problem of pride in uh, verse 46 to 48. Luke said that an argument arose among them which, uh, as to which of them was the greatest. Now, let's remember this. Um, previously, last week, we talked about uh, these disciples not being able to cast out demons. And one of the indicators in there was that they, they didn't submit themselves to the Lord. They, 
They didn't go and pray and fast to cast out a demon. As a matter of fact, what they did is that they just did it on their own, seems to be the indication, on their own efforts. And then argument came about between them and the Pharisees. And then here we are again. We have an argument, but this time it's coming out between the disciples themselves. And understand that this is all in the same encounter. So though we split it up, you could say that this is part two of last week. So there's this argument that comes out. And the question is, what brought the 12 disciples to that point? To the point of arguing as to which of them is going to be the greatest. Well, consider what led up to, to this point. Earlier in his ministry in Galilee, Jesus spent a night in prayer and he named the 12 men that were going to be his apostles. Right? That's chapter 6. Out of hundreds of disciples that followed Jesus at the time, he chose only 12 to be the apostles. These were the chosen 12. They left everything to follow Jesus. Their ministry uh, apprenticeship included observing Jesus' ministry firsthand. They heard his powerful preaching, saw the amazing miracles, demonstrating his power over nature, demons, disease, and even death. And then Jesus commissions them to go on their first mission trip, preaching, healing, and casting out of demons. By the grace of God, they had been given a unique gift to serve alongside Jesus. So Jesus cast out the demon of a boy and then again foretold his impending death. And so then even though the disciples didn't understand what Jesus was saying, they started arguing about which of them was going to be the greatest. In other words, to some extent, you could say that they were arguing, okay, well, then who's taking over? But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me, for it is the one who is least among you who is the greatest. Now, in Jesus' day, children were not, like they were loved, but they were considered insignificant. Jesus simply teaching that greatness in God's sight is measured by humility out of our service is something that would have been strange for people to connect to. And so children were essentially to be seen but not heard. They were... Um, not ones that you would try to model life after. Commentator William Barclay notes that there are many, thing, many wrong motives to service that come along with this. And this is kind of what we're dealing with when we're dealing with the disciples. But I think this kind of speaks to our own hearts too. It says, first, there's a desire for prestige. And prestige is defined as the, the desire to be admired. Some personal uh, desire or some desire for personal influence and want others to view them highly. That's what some people want. It has nothing to do with Jesus. When we work for God, prestige will be the least of things that enter our mind. That's going to be the least of it because we want to be about his purposes. We will desire to make his name great more than ours. And so if the purpose of a person's ministry is prestige, is to, be, is to be admired, well, then that's not modeling Jesus. And so we need to move away from that, right? And so as we do his ministry, as we model ourselves after him, as we become more and more like him, then, then we're going to be more excited about God's name being venerated and lifted up than our own. A second reason um, or a second motivation for people is the desire for place or position. 
If we're given a task or a position or an office in the church, we should regard that not as an accomplishment, but as an honor and a responsibility. There are those who serve within the church, not thinking really of those who they serve, but thinking rather of themselves. These are those who seek to be served rather than to serve. The seek to, they seek to be served rather than to serve. The, to be chosen for office is to be set apart for service. And so I'll say it this way. If service is beneath you, then leadership is above you. In other words, if you're in a, in a significant position within any kind of organization, whether it's by way of employment, uh, by way of, of a not-for-profit organization, a church, whatever it is, let's say you're an elder of a church. If you're unwilling to do dishes because you think that that's beneath you, you shouldn't be an elder, period. If serving is below you, then leadership is above you. It's about the heart condition. Uh, did we come to seek and save the lost? Like, Jesus, the king of all things, that through him, to him, and for him, all things were made, washed dirty feet. If service is below us, leadership is above us. Now, a third motivation is that a desire for what one might refer to as prominence. Many people will serve or give so long as their service and their generosity are seen and that they're thanked and that they're praised. Prominence is about being seen. Now, that's not the same as being valued, okay? Being valued is okay, but this idea of, look what I've done, or don't you know what I've done? Luke 18, 19 to 14 says this, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like the other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week and get a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. If we only give, or if we give only to gain something out of the giving for ourselves, we've undone much of its good. Thirdly, there's a problem of prejudice with these disciples. Verses 49 to 50. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us, or he's not one of us, he's not in our group. Now, apparently the disciples had recently seen someone casting out demons in Jesus' name, and since Jesus himself had not commissioned him, as he had commissioned the 12 disciples, they tried to stop him from his ministry. They actually said, like, but we, we tried to stop him. So I, I'm trying to comprehend this. Here's somebody casting out demons in the name of Jesus, and the disciples are trying to stop him from doing it. Jesus' response to him, to John, was, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. So Jesus doesn't pronounce any judgment about the man who came, who was casting out demons in his name. He doesn't praise him, and he doesn't condemn him. He just simply says to his disciples not to stop him. Jesus' statement is important. 
There are so many differences and divisions within the body of Jesus, and yet we are one body. The language of Scripture is that we're a family. It's easy to think, though, that our way is the right way and that everything, everyone else is just wrong. We've got to learn to be thankful if sin is opposed, if the gospel is preached. We've we got to learn to be thankful that the devil's kingdom gets pulled down through the work that may not be done exactly the way we like it. Above all, we must praise God if the souls are converted and Christ is magnified, no matter who the preacher may be and what church they may belong to. We only stand against false teaching. We stand against false teachers, not against those who don't share our preferences. Like, happy are those who can say with Paul in Philippians 1.18, What then? Only that in every way, whether pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. Or with Moses in Numbers 11, verse 2, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that the Lord, all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. And so there's this idea of we do not need to centralize Jesus' work on us. It needs to be on him. And whomever it is that he chooses to do something, we need to praise that. We need to be excited about that. It's not about building our own personal kingdoms. It's about contributing to his. And again, the only ones we stand against are the ones who are the false teachers and the ones who are the false prophets. And so what we have here is, is the disciples having this problem of perception, right? They had, they had this problem of, of recognizing what Jesus was talking about. They had a problem of, of dealing with their own internal issues of, of pride that they were wrestling with. We have the problem of prejudice, which, by the way, comes from a place of pride as well. It's kind of a byproduct. And we're not that different. After looking at the incident of Jesus, again, foretelling his death as recorded here in this passage in verses 43 to 50, I think we need to thank Jesus for his patience with us. Like, how many times do we not get it? How many times do you think Jesus may have had to say of us, you unfaithful, perverse generation, how much longer do I need to be with you? Like, how if we were to evaluate our relationship with Jesus, where do we think that would come up? We all have the same problems as the disciples do. We have a problem with perception. We have a problem with pride. We have a problem with prejudice. Mother Teresa of Calcutta is often quoted as saying, the Lord did not call us to be successful, but to be faithful. And yet I think here in North America, we're so fixated on being successful that we sometimes forget that we're required to be faithful. We shouldn't be threatened by the success of others, nor by the fact that others seem to have something that we don't, nor by the fact that others outside of our church might do some great and godly things, nor by the fact that the world may praise others outside of the church that we're in for the good works more than they might praise us. If we remain faithful to the great commission that the Lord's given us, we'll be doing well. No matter how others succeed or fail, no matter how the world may judge us, and then we're able to go in peace into the world and accomplish God's will. So a lot of this has to do with what's kind of going on inside of us. So here's the question. 
When you evaluate your own walk with Jesus, do you have a problem of perception? Do you see him for everything he says he is? Do you have a problem with pride? Are you more focused on you than him and his mission? Do you have a problem with prejudice? Are there those that you would say, they don't fit inside my group, and so because they don't fit inside my group, I want nothing to do with them, and I'm not confident that Jesus does either. What's your heart condition? Because the more we're focused on the mission, the more we're gonna be able to walk forward into the mission that Jesus has given us. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for today. And I thank you for your word here. I thank you for the message that we get to see from the disciples. And Lord, learn from, from their experiences and their growth. And I pray, Jesus, that we wouldn't read a story like this and, and condemn the disciples, but rather, Lord, we would reflect on our own lives. Like, what's our perception of you? What pride issues do we need to be dealing with? What prejudices do we have? Because these are all hurdles, Lord. We don't want hurdles in our relationship with you and in the mission that you've given us. So Lord, uh, would you forgive us of leaning into our hurdles? Would you remind us? Would you expose us? Would you um, let us see what the hurdles are in our lives so that we can confess those and repent of those and move forward in the mission that you've called us into? In your name I pray, amen.